Hi, everybody. It's Jonah Pallone, and welcome to Owner Operated, conversations with small business millionaires. Listen, when I was growing up, most people just told me to follow the normal path and get a job at a big company with quote-unquote job security. Eventually, I woke up, and I pursued business going to UNC Keenan Flagler for undergrad. It was a great experience, but almost everything I was taught in the business school centered around big business and startups. During college, I was fortunate enough to land a position where I get to be around small business owners every day. I get an inside look at how they make tough decisions. With owner-operated, I want to let you in behind the curtain. Listen, my entire life I've heard people give business owners a bad rap. Since I've gotten involved in helping business owners sell their companies at Midstreet, I've learned that most often the opposite is true. Small business owners are often the most giving and supportive people I surround myself with. I'm on a mission to get the word out that small business ownership is a good thing. But don't get it twisted. I'm going to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. A lot of emotions, a lot of hard work, and just what makes these businesses so special, the people behind them. Join me on my journey into the world of small business ownership. And if you enjoy the podcast, be sure to leave us a rating on iTunes and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you like. Today, I sat down with Tim Hunter, a business development officer for Fidelity Bank in North Carolina. Tim and I met through my first project, the Raleigh Roundtable, which was a weekly newsletter about small business inspired by Jed Burns' top five commercial real estate newsletter. Tim and I met for coffee and were surprised at how similar our philosophies on business and life were. He's been an awesome connection to have in the lending industry, and I wanted to share what his thoughts were on small business and lending with the audience. We talked about what you should know about small business banking to set yourself up for success, the differences between community and national banks, avoiding yes-man BDOs or business development officers, and fostering relationships with others. Thank you so much for listening, and let me know what you think of the episode. Tim, thanks so much for being on the show, man. I really appreciate you being here. Jonah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So start off, let's start off by telling the audience um, who you are, what do you do? Just give us your two-minute elevator pitch. Sure, absolutely. So I am a, a, I like to say I'm a community banker with Fidelity Bank here in the Raleigh market and have been in the financial services industry for, man, time flies, 22-plus uh, years now, uh, both here and in the Washington, D.C. market. Uh, live in Raleigh, married eight-year-old daughter and have been with Fidelity for a little bit over three years now. That's awesome. And, and what do you specialize in at Fidelity Bank? What do you, you know, what's your sort of main responsibilities and roles? So my responsibility is to manage our existing portfolio of clients and also to find new clients that'll be a good fit for Fidelity Bank. I spend most of my time on the lending side, but I do want to be a banker instead of just a lender. So we help small businesses with every single part of uh, what they're trying to do to be successful. Okay, perfect. And Tim and I were talking before the show, um, just so everybody knows, kind of where we overlap in, in our methodologies is he kind of considers um, Fidelity to be a blue-collar sort of bank, right? You, you service the blue-collar sort of small business owners, and that's exactly kind of what we place our focus on at Midstreet, but also with the owner-operated podcast, hence the name. So I just, I really appreciate you being on, and I think it's I think it's really good for, for the audience to hear your perspective on, on things. Um, one thing for me, it's just there's a common sort of misconception, partially accurate, but partially not, uh, uh, small business owners have about the lending side that it's sort of a, this adversarial relationship that it, you know, has to be sort of at end, you know, at odds with each other, right? What's your take on that? And how have you kind of helped with mitigating any sort of feelings like that, you know, from your owners? Well, that's a great question. And I'm sitting here thinking as you're talking, 
I'm lucky because I get to live vicariously through these business owners that I work with. So I receive a regular salary. I'm not an actual business owner. I don't know if I'm wired that way, but I get to know all these businesses. I mean, we swoop in and get really ground level and granular with understanding what they do, how they make money, how their business operates, and how we can uh, be a partner. It, it certainly shouldn't be adversarial. Um, with our folks, even if they're planning on doing something six months, two years, five years down the road, we're in those conversations now. So I can prepare them to be ready for that and what the bank's going to look for, how you can present yourself, put the best foot forward and what kind of things we're going to need to see. Cause I can be pretty direct and candid and transparent with that at Fidelity. We like to really pull the curtain back. It also shouldn't be a mystery what we're looking for as a bank. And I think we can lift that curtain back. There's no meeting at Fidelity that I'm in. There's no call that I'm on. There's no reporting that we do that I couldn't share with any of our clients. And why not pull back that curtain a little bit so that they can see inside? One of the themes I thought about, I'm trying to think more about themes as I do these episodes. And with you, the, the theme, just as you mentioned, really seems to be demystifying small business lending. Mm-hmm. So along that same vein, what? let's just back it up all the way to the basics. I'm a small business owner. Let's say I'm doing $5 million in sales. I own a you know, landscaping company in Raleigh, for example. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I come to you. What are some of, you know, A, what are some of the reasons folks come to you? What are the, you know, typical use cases? And B, what are some of the best practices when I'm going through that initial, you know, feeling out process to get comfortable with the right bank and also to make the right decisions? Well, that's very insightful. And I think, you should go out, meet with bankers. Maybe Fidelity's the right bank for you. Maybe I'm the right banker. Maybe we're not, but go talk to a few. I mean, I I think you've got to see and understand where that bank is coming from, what they're trying to focus on, what they have to offer, what their niche is, what their specialty is, and is it just going to be a good fit for you and your business? So I encourage anybody, you should go out and interview multiple banks and bankers uh, to have as part of your circle. So, And when you're doing that, what what kind of questions are you asking? If you're from the client perspective or from the the client perspective perspective of kind of feeling out several different banks, what would you ask if you were a business owner doing that process? You know, one of the things I'd want to know is, have you helped people like me before? You know, if I'm a landscaper, I don't want to be the first landscaper you've ever done business with because you've got, as a bank and as a banker, you've got to be able to understand how that industry works, have some experiences in the past that you've learned from so that you can best insert yourself and and be additive to them and accretive from day one. Got it. Okay. Um, And and then going along with that, with that question, sort of just what are some of the basic um, fundamentals that I should think about when I'm, you know, say I'm a small business owner in that same example and I choose Fidelity Bank and I say, I'm, I'm comfortable with you guys. What are some of the you know fundamental things I should keep in mind as sort of best practices and principles going forward in my relationship with you? So you want a banker who is going to have a relationship. And I think any bank in town is going to tell you the, the exact same thing. We're relationship oriented. We want to get to know you, but find out how they actually do that and what those words mean. Um, the last year with all the uncertainty of COVID, the financial impacts, the anxiety, everything everybody went through, I think people got to see where the rubber hits the road with a relationship. You know, is this person going to return my calls? Are they going to let me know about things that are coming down the road that I may not know about because I'm busy focused on my business? So you want to make sure that they're proactive, too. Um, if we're not careful in the banking industry, and this is true of a lot of industries, we become a commodity. You can get a loan or an account or a credit card just about anywhere. 
But do you have that person who's on your board of directors, who's in your circle of, gosh, I'm buying a piece of equipment. Should I buy it? Should I lease it? I've got enough cash. Should I use that? Should I you know, leverage financing a little bit? What's going on with rates? You want to make sure you got somebody that's very knowledgeable and proactive that can partner with you. Mm-hmm. And what are some of those options that owners have with Fidelity? And, and just, I guess, in, in general, in, in the industry as a whole, what, what are some of the reasons folks come to you? Well, they value that relationship. And that's kind of why we do work with small, mid-sized, local businesses. Because I think it resonates with them that Fidelity is local that uh, we're not publicly traded, that we're right here in the Triangle 2. We're headquartered in Fuquay. So we can understand them in a different way because banks have been gobbling each other up over the last 10 to 15 years, and we're sort of the one who has stayed independent and uh, is not for sale. So we just offer a unique uh, way to connect that, that resonates with local business owners. Got it. And, and so what are some of those products that a, that a business owner has? Um, so, if, you know, in terms of the loans that they can get. So that, you know, let's just say equipment financing is one of them. Sure. What are some of the other options? We do a ton of real estate, uh, so anything like that, we're going to like. That's probably true of most banks in town as well. We're one of the few banks who will lend on land, okay. too. Um, a lot of banks have shied away from that in recent years and gotten away from it, but we'll do that. We do a, a lot of construction financing. We do a lot of equipment. We do a lot of vehicles. Um, this might be a good example. I had a business who uh, specializes in making and installing specialized HVAC systems, so like for hospitals and ones that have real specific needs for what that air filtration would look like, in it, even pre-COVID. And as soon as they had been in business two years, we knew this customer well. We said, once you've hit that two-year mark where you've got a trend to show how your business is doing, they were looking for a line of credit that they need because they've got to be able to show some of their vendors that they've got access to capital if they need it to, to get approved for, for some of those things. So once it hit year two, they lost money their first year, made money the second year, and we were able to do a $250,000 line of credit based on their accounts receivable. Now, I don't know many banks that would lend money to a two-year-old company who lost money in year one without a tangible asset. But we knew this business, we knew this client, we knew his industry experience. And when we guided him on what that needed to look like to get approved, he, he followed all those steps. And as soon as that milestone was hit, we were ready to do it. Got it. Okay. So let's just walk through, I mean, just a basic example, right? Kind of going along that same thing I said. So say I'm a $5 million landscaping business. What does it take? And, and it's probably variable, but but just in general terms, what does it take for me to get financing just in general? What, what are some of the things that I need? So you said um, collateral is typically one of them. You, you funded a loan based on AR, you said. What are some other sort of options and is there, are there, are there ratios that you use? You know, what are, as a business owner, what should I be looking for to make sure that I pass those tests? Is it really just about having that first conversation? Well, the worst high level answer I can give you, but it's true is it depends as we really do look at it. Each deal significantly differently based on the industry, based on what they're trying to accomplish. I will say the one thing that most, uh, times that we do financing have in common are, I call it the big three credit, got to have good credit. And any bank's going to require a personal guarantor unless it's a nonprofit or publicly traded company. Those, those days of not having a guarantor, just they're over. And if you do find financing like that, it's probably not favorable terms. So we, we require personal guarantors in situations like that. So what does your credit look like? 
Number two, as you mentioned, collateral. We feel a lot more comfortable. We don't want your house. We don't want your building. We don't want your Caterpillar, but we're going to feel better taking a, a security interest in that. So, and, and, and that seems to be just industry-wide now, right? Sure. Absolutely. So practically speaking, you know, if you're listening to this and, and you don't own a business and maybe you want to or, or you do own a business and you're just not familiar with some of the terms you described, personal guarantee. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for a business owner and, and practically how does that work? Let's say we're in 08, you know, you know, God forbid right now, but let's say we're in 08 and, you know, I've got a loan with you or, or a business owner has a loan with Fidelity and, the, you know, you have personal guarantees on, let's say, my, my personal residence and a rental property or something like that. What does that mean? How does that work out? Well, in many cases, it's just the business owner and anybody who's 20% owner or more would require to be a personal guarantor. I think that's pretty standard throughout the industry. It just means that you're personally guaranteeing the loan. So if for some reason, the business can't afford to make those monthly payments that we would come to you and say, hey, Jonah, um, you know, this is your responsibility. And I think if when people are reluctant about that, the thing I say, and it, usually I've got a good enough relationship where we can kind of joke it and say it, or joke about it and say it in a real uh, uh, loose manner, is the only reason you need to be worried is if you don't think you can make the payment, right? Because otherwise, um, there's nothing to be worried about. But it is, so it's credit, collateral, and then cash flow is is the third of what I'd call the big three, which you need to get. Feel like you can get approved for financing, and what I mean by that is, again, we don't want your truck. We don't want your building. We're not in that business. Um, But what we do want is for you to make that monthly payment and be able to comfortably afford that. And you guys have been around for how long now? Fourth generation business? Over 110 years. Okay. And so so through that period, and how long have you been with the company? A little over three. Over those, I mean, I'm sure you have distilled information from, from folks in the firm. What are some practices and, and, and ways that they've looked at transactions that have helped prevent um, owners from defaulting on their loans, you know, throughout the years? I'm sure the, I mean, hundred years, you guys have learned so much from that process. What are just some of those key indicators? And I guess another way to rephrase the question is, you know, you've got owner A and you've got owner B and you, and you know that owner B is, you're, you're a little bit less comfortable about lending to that person. What are some of those kind of trademark signs that you look for? Well, it, so a lot of <clears throat> thoughts on that question. Number one, we have been around a long time and there's a reason. There's a reason we've chosen to remain independent as well. And I think it's that Fidelity's got a tradition of only doing business where we understand it, not getting swept up in something that's temporary, not getting uh, swept up or caught up in the moment. Uh, so we, you know, back in 08, 09, you had banks calling back loans on people and they're you know, if they were showing any signs at all, they'd literally call the loan and make them pay it all on the spot, which put people in a really, really bad position. We didn't do that. And also in the past year, again, with COVID, we offered payment deferrals to our clients. When we saw what was coming, we did a tremendous amount of the Paycheck Protection Program loans. Uh, I mean, I was on a conference call where I don't think this happens too many times. Leadership of the bank literally said, don't worry about hitting any kind of goal right now at all. Don't worry about opening another account, making another loan. You make sure your clients get through this time and you let us know what they need. And we're able to do some pretty creative things to do that. So I guess we're fairly conservative. We're very consistent. We know what we know and we're really good at that when we stick to our lane. And then when things like this happen and 
economic things happen one once every 10, 15 years. We're there standing right beside our clients trying to help them through that. And we did, our delinquency rate is virtually non-existent really? because of that, which is extraordinary after last year. Wow. Yeah, that really is. And, and it's interesting just hearing you talk about that because it seems to be part of a larger principle that I'm starting to believe more and more, which is just as you go through life, you're going to have a lot of distractions and things that seem really, call it sexy, that are, you know, Whatever that looks like, and and your principle as a bank really has been, we know what we know, and we're going to double down on that instead of trying to go super wide and and do all these different things that we may not be specialists at. So you know that's part of the part of the thing too is just I completely believe in that, and I think it's a it's something that a lot of people need to hear because you you hear stories of folks kind of getting caught up in the, in the next thing, you know, you, you probably know somebody who has the next thing that they're trying every, every couple of years are doing the next thing instead of just choosing a lane and doubling down into it. Eric and I talked about that in our last podcast. So it's just funny to hear that. Cause it's like, that's your culture as an organization, right? Um, and one thing I would add too, is if you're a business owner looking to work with a bank, find out what their appetite is to lend to your industry or your type of company. Because one thing a lot of people may not know, and why would you, unless you work for a bank, Banks like to diversify their asset classes, and we consider a loan an asset. So you break that down by, let's just take real estate. I think most people would know that restaurants and churches can be more risky industries to lend to for a lot of reasons. Now, we do that. I uh, helped a restaurant refinance their building last year and helped fund a $2 million brand new church in Garner. So we, we lend money to those folks when it makes sense. Um, but those are considered riskier industries, and banks may limit their exposure to lend to those particular types of asset classes. And we've got limits like that, too. We don't like to be over 5% here or $10 million of exposure here. The difference is I can pull up a report and show it to you and show you exactly how much exposure we are looking for in each area and whether we would be able to do that or not. And I don't think that kind of transparency exists uh, across the board. And it's really nice to be able to tell somebody flat out yes or no, mm-hmm. here's where we do have an appetite. Yeah. And, and just going back on something you kind of mentioned earlier, which and we kind of discussed, but in 08, and this is a story that I heard from um, uh, just one of the stories here at Midstreet, that or past client that we you know, that client knew somebody who had this happen to them. Um, over in Charlotte, they had a shopping center and they had a, um, they had a 20 year or a 10 year note. I can't remember the terms, right. But, but let's just say for a certain amount of time, but that note was broken out into four different chunks of, I think it was five years. So it might've been a 20 year. Um, and so basically when 08 happened, they were kind of nearing the end of one of those terms and the bank told them, we can't re-up on this. You're going to have to find some financing somewhere else, right? And the to the owner, it was absolutely devastating. And something I, I think is a common misconception today is that you can just get, you know, non, um, non-recourse financing. And, you know, if, if things all hit the fan, well, that's all right. You, you just, you know, you just dissolve the business and now you're fine personally, right? But that's not what happened at all because the personal guarantees. So basically what happened for this owner was the, the term kind of crept up on him. And, you know, you guys said you have a pretty low delinquency rate. What, I mean, for an owner looking at that scenario, how do they avoid that situation where, you know, they were unable to pay because at the time in 08, they were unable to find a a lender that would, you know, lend to their, their business. What would you tell that owner, you know, looking retroactively, looking back on it, how to better set up for that? Is it just a matter of choosing the right bank? Who's not going to, not going to 
run tail on, you know, tuck tail and leave on you? Or is it more so your, your business inherently, maybe you should have gotten less debt. It's hard to tell from, from knowing such little about it, but what would you say on that? I'd say that reiterates why having that relationship is so important. Cause can we pursue every project that I want to, or we want to for our clients? No, we can't. Uh, we can't say yes all the time. We are fairly conservative. Again, we, we kind of stay in our own lane, um, but know that really, really well. And any banker at any bank should be able to articulate how your business fit in, fits in to what they're trying to accomplish as a bank, if that's a good way to put it. So things can shift. Things can change. I think that happens even more at bigger companies. I won't even single out bigger banks, just bigger companies. And they've got shareholders to answer to and a lot of different things that we don't have to go through. Um, so I think make just make sure you know, make sure you ask all the right questions about where they're headed. Is that bank really looking to grow aggressively? What areas are they growing in? Where does their profitability come from? I, again, there's no reason any company should need to hide that. And I don't think anybody would feel uncomfortable sharing that. But you got to understand where the company's coming from, too. And sometimes when you get a really, really good deal, this is true of anything, find out why. You know, is it just a promotion that, that the company you're doing business with is trying to run? Or do they really need to make some sales or gains or show some units uh, to show some sort of financial measure? Just try to dig down as much as you can. How do you dig down? At, find a banker you can trust who's going to meet with you, who's going to look you in the eye, who seems like they've – I think you get a feel for somebody who's going to be very honest with you and, and transparent. And they should be able to tell you the good and the bad and the ugly because every company's got it. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, and I think one thing we forgot to mention before we covered recourse versus non-recourse debt. Let's just, you know, some of our listeners are sort of beginning their journey into the world of business. Could you just give a brief overview on the difference between those? And then we, we've talked about personal guarantee already. So just non-recourse versus recourse. Well, that's, we would consider non-recourse not having a personal guarantor where just the company is is doing that. And again, church, a nonprofit, a publicly traded company, I think you'll find some non-recourse financing there because you really can't pin down a particular owner. Um, but in most cases, traditional, particularly small to mid-size businesses are going to fall in that recourse category where a personal guarantor is required. Got it. Okay. And then just kind of talk through some of the range of uh, businesses that you sort of service and that you've defined your your sort of niche as. I know you don't have a, a super specific criteria in terms of money, but you know why have you focused on the sort of blue collar space? What is that part of Fidelity's sort of culture? And just talk to that a little bit. I think it is part of our culture, and that's going back again well well over a hundred years. That we understand those businesses really well, and we bank plenty of professionals too. Uh, all sorts of doctors, attorneys, everything like that. I do find it's more conducive to establish a relationship with somebody who's in a blue-collar industry. And a lot of banks in town overlook them. But the plumber with the rumpled polo with his name on it, uh, with the hammer loop and his jean shorts, that guy will sit down with you and have lunch and tell you all about his business. He appreciates that you're there and the partnership that you have. He's going to lean on you as a trusted partner. And he's probably got a lake house and a boat to boot. So not only are they great people to deal with and they value that relationship and working with a local company, um, they're fantastic to deal with because those businesses do very, very well. If they know what they're doing, uh, they turn 
profit. They make money. So they're easy to lend money to. They're great to work with. Um, I can't say enough about how passionate we are about working with particularly businesses that are somehow real estate adjacent or deal with uh, construction in any way. So we've, if you look at our book of business, it will contain a tremendous amount of plumbers, electricians, HVAC companies, landscapers, builders, masons, uh, carpenters, you name it. Those folks are just fantastic to deal with. And they really do seem to value having a local bank and a, a relationship. This show is brought to you by Midstreet Mergers and Acquisitions, a business intermediary based out of Raleigh, North Carolina that specializes in selling businesses generating $1 to $25 million in revenue throughout the Southeast. If you own a business and are considering an exit, check out their website and contact them at midstreet.com. That's M-I-D-street.com. Now back to the show. What are some of the six, you know, you've, you've dealt with tons of business owners. What are some of the successful traits of, you know, some of the owners that you work with who are, who are very smart when they make financing decisions? And then a corollary to that question sort of is when a, when a business owner comes to you and says, do they say, I need a million dollars of financing for X? Or do they say, hey, Tim, here's a situation. What should I do? A little bit of both. And I would say what makes a successful business owner and and somebody that we can lend money to and they're pursuing whatever project or making a purchase, one of the biggest things is they're smart enough to know that they need to surround themselves with other people. So they've got a team. And I wouldn't even define it by industry necessarily, but maybe it's a banker, an attorney, a CPA, a real estate agent. But you've got your core Again, I'll, I'll call it a board of directors that you go to for decision making. So they know they're a really good plumber and that's why they're successful and they worked their tail off. I'm sure a lot of the people that you're interviewing, everybody thinks, oh, I got a good idea. I can make an app or I can do this and then start a business. It's not that easy. You know, I was chatting with one of our clients the other day and it, you know, we were talking about they, they've become very, very successful and do very well and continue to grow and can't hire people fast enough. And he goes, you know, but nobody really knows that my wife and I didn't take a vacation for four years. It's like we only would take off Christmas Day and just how much work goes into that. But they're also humble enough to take a step back and say, I'm really good at X which makes my business successful, but I need a bookkeeper. I need an attorney. I need this. We can't do it all and be experts in that. Let's focus on what we're really good at and surround ourselves with really smart people who are looking out for our best interests who can be on our team. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and I've seen that too, just in kind of my work at Midstreet, just the bet, the most successful business owners seem to be a little bit humble when it comes to receiving advice. And when they find an advisor that they truly trust and truly can, can empathize with, they, they trust them and they just, they trust their advice and they use that to, to go forward. Um, so it's cool that you've seen that as well. Um, what do you, when you talk to business owners, Jonah, I'm curious, did, do you feel like a lot of them see a banker as a critical part of that team or as more of a commodity? What do you what are you hearing from people? I would say the more sort of if you want to call it sophisticated white collar types of owners, and I don't even like to use that term, but just just more white collar types of owners who who have businesses that maybe aren't as hands-on. For them, they they understand, and this is a generalization, obviously, typically they understand the usage of, you know, having sort of independent advisory help in all the different buckets, including a lender. And they have their lender and they've had their lender for 15, 20 years, and that's their guy or gal, and they just go to them for all their sort of decisions. I will say a common theme with owners that I've seen is 
they see it, they see lending as more of a commodity in, in typically, right? Just, just generally speaking, they see it as, oh, I need a hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment. I just need to go to my lender and we'll get it done. It's not a, they have a relationship of trust built, but the, the money is sort of the afterthought. The, the relationship is sort of the afterthought of the money coming in, if that makes sense. Um, some owner, you know, it's, it's, there's a wide gambit of people out there, but some owners I have seen are, are really intentional about the relationships they have with their advisors. And to your point, they look at it on a really long-term basis and they say, well, I'm going to be in business for 40 years and I know that I'm going to need financing throughout the years and I need someone that I can trust who's not going to pull out on me and I'm not going to pull out on them. We're going to treat each other with respect and have trust between the, the two parties. Um, and those are often the most successful of them. Uh, it's funny because our our role in that process, we're, we're part of their team, but we're part of their team at the very end. So maybe they've owned that business for 40 years. We're part of, we're at year 39, right? So it's just interesting how all the pieces work together. But just that overall theme of like, as a, you know, let's say, take the plumber example. Plumber gets really good. And this is something we see all the time because people come to us at different stages in, in their in their sort of businesses. A plumber will start his business. He'll make, you know, let's say he makes $100,000 by himself or $150,000 by himself. He's doing great. He says, well, I actually want to make this into an actual business. I can do something here, right? Adding that first, second, third, you know, those initial team members is a really big test because it turns into something different than are they a plumber or now they're, oh, okay, now they're a manager and a, and a business person. It's a little bit of a different skill, right? Quite a bit of a different it skill. Is. And so that's just interesting to see over time who, you know, people come to us and they say, I want to sell my business, but maybe they don't have those employees set up. And so w- what we have to tell people is, you know, you've got to have a, a system in place so that when you leave, you can easily train someone to take your place if you're at that sort of a level. If, the, if they're successful, a plumber like that can build his business or her business into something really special. And that's what the podcast is all about, Tim. It's all about like the owners who sort of people count out. They, you know, people don't even, it's so funny. Like you see in the news, tons of stuff about startups and people are really making money from startups. I'm not, not bashing on them, but the chances are so much lower in my opinion. I mean, a, a reasonably competent person going into the startup culture, if they were to venture into the small business game, they would kill it. If they had, you know, if they had the right mindset, let's say. And that's what it really gets to maybe. And that's part of the reason why I started this whole show is just, I really think there's something here in the small business space. It's, it's awesome the way it exists. And the, like you said, I mean, we've talked about this before privately, but just the community aspects of small business, you know, supporting local small business owners, you know, actually having someone's back, you know, that's a, a large company will operate based off of a set of procedures or a set of rules and everybody does. Right. But but there's a level of trust at the smaller levels, at the more Main Street, middle market sort of level. So, Oh, absolutely. And again, you talk about building your team and having people that you trust by your side and looking at that from a long-term perspective. I also get it from a business owner's perspective. It's their business. It's their money. It is their livelihood. It's how they put food on the table and they work their tail off to get to where they are no matter what level of stage of maturity the business is in. So to relinquish some of the control over something where you had to build it by having control and everything from the ground up, to relinquish control and start to trust people who are outside of your organization, that's a tough thing to do. So I, I get it. And people don't understand, and I've talked about this before, but I'm going to talk about it until I'm blue in the face. People don't understand that business owners aren't just making money hand over fist, um, you know, at least in our experience, right? Most business owners we've dealt with, they 
care a ton about their employees. They care a ton about making sure that they save enough to provide for their families and their friends. And you have these misconce- this misconception in society that a lot of business owners are sort of really greedy. They just care about their profits. Screw everybody else. I'm just in it for me. And if you've been in the small business environment, you just know that that's not usually the case. Completely opposite. I mean, just the principle alone of the people who truly make it as far as I've seen, are the ones who outlast everyone else. They're just in the game longer. And how do you how do you stay in the game longer? You have to operate off of a set of you know principles that other people can agree with. It's sort of the golden rule thing, right? Honesty, integrity, trust. It's it's basic basic stuff. But you know, business owners not going to be in the in the arena <laughs> if you want to call it that for a long time if they're just screwing people over and saying screw everybody else. So. I just think that's super important to get across is that, you know, just as well as I do, that it's 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 different than what people think it is. It know? absolutely is. And again, one of the uh, differences for us, a differentiator at Fidelity, is that's who we are, too. We're a small to mid-sized local business who's headquartered right here and privately owned and has had to go by a guiding set of principles uh, throughout, you know, uh, well over 100 years. That's part of what's helped us be the tortoise winning that race. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because you're, I mean, and you think about, you mentioned that people think about bank on the back end sometimes for the financing part and who's going to be the cheapest. And there's 35 or so banks in the triangle and it, one bank can't always offer the lowest rate and fee. You get that, that would be no kind of business model to survive. So we all try to figure out where we are and where we can be competitive, um, and you certainly should get the best deal that you can, but that relationship has to be a lot more about the value that you get by partnering and less about the pure cost of it. You should trust your bank to always be fair and give you a good deal, always try to negotiate, shop around, do all that. But at the end of the day, and again, everybody who's in business now or has been in business, if you went through 2008, if you went through 2020 and the uncertainty, you know what that means in a different way. Is the person you're calling going to hide under their desk? Are they going to refer to corporate policy? Or are they going to meet you and shake your hand and look you in the eye and say, here's what our options are. What do you need? How can we help? You know, we're, we're here to get you through the good times and the bad. Mm-hmm. And you, you saw what businesses did that in the last year. I mean, one of my favorite clients that I work with is a <laughs> auto mechanic. And they were essential from day one. So they could remain open uh, even at the, the height of the um, – COVID uncertainty, nobody was driving their cars, Jonah. So nobody needed maintenance on their cars. You you look at anything, there was less wrecks. So there wasn't any body work. People weren't putting the miles on. They didn't need oil changes, routine maintenance. He didn't know how long that was going to last or what he was going to do. And, and, uh, we helped him purchase his business and his building a couple years ago. And he, you know, we sat down and talked, you you know, here's what we can do. What do you need? How can we help you through this? That's what you want from a partner is somebody you can call when you know you're facing tough times or you know there's going to be uncertainty or even if you don't know what that looks like what happens now what do we do mm-hmm. sage advice it's the same thing we tell our owners it's just you can shop around based on price and i and i to a certain degree respect that but at the end of the day what really matters is do i trust this person and like you said you know these people build their businesses for 20 30 40 you know maybe 10 years but they put their blood, sweat, and tears into their companies. And it's like, 
there's just no other way to operate other than, you know, based on trust and, and respect and, you know, truly trying to offer the best, op, you know, service that you can. So that's, that's really good. Um, let's talk about COVID just for a second. That whole, that was crazy. And I'm sure you guys had to deal with a lot of uh, PPP, EIDL stuff. What was that experience like for you guys? Well, the most interesting thing about the COVID and its impact on the economy and local businesses was you couldn't have prepared for it. You couldn't have predicted it. And it impacted businesses disproportionately. I mean, a good chunk of our client base had their best year ever in 2020. If you had anything to do with building homes, you did just fine. Uh, but we had people who really, really struggled too and are still struggling. And it took them a while to get out of that. But you think back to 08, 09, were there signs everybody should have seen that things were overpriced and that things were happening that shouldn't be happening? You can make that argument. But who could ever see a global pandemic and shutdowns coming? It hadn't happened in 100 years. So I don't think anybody was prepared for it. I don't think it made sense to plan and prepare for it to some degree. So it, it was like an air horn in everybody's ear once that all got real. And it's one of those things that my daughter will tell her grandchildren about living through. And you will remember where you were when you heard this news report or when this happened. Um, so it was wild. It's something we'll never forget. Can you plan from a generic perspective to have your rainy day fund aside for the unexpected, you know, a, a hurricane, a weather event, a pandemic, whatever is coming down, you can and you should, and maybe this will make people rethink that. Um, but there's a lot of aspects of your business that are beyond your control. Those forces in the marketplace, and this is one of the greatest ones that we've seen in several generations. Um, that again, no, nobody would have thought to plan or prepare for. Um, and every day there was so much uncertainty. Uh, I mean, I remember I had. It, it, banking was considered an essential industry. I had a sheet of paper in my car in case I got pulled over that made it okay that I was on the road uh, to go into my office. So, it, yeah, all this stuff, even now, with a benefit of a little bit of hindsight, uh, just seems so surreal that, that we just lived through this in the last 12 to 14 months. And I can't imagine going home as a business owner, you know, think about that auto mechanic. Nobody's driving their cars. I can stay open, but business is down 70 80%. You know, I mean, everybody thinks about restaurants and some of the obvious ones, uh, but you don't think about those other people who were impacted um, in that kind of way. I mean, I talked to, again, a restaurant owner that is a good friend of mine, and I've called to check on him about once a month, at least throughout this whole thing. How you doing? What's going on? What are you guys doing? How are you adapting? And last time I talked to him, he said, you know, this is the best month we've had in a long time. So that's great. He said, yeah, we're nearly 60% where we used to be. Oh, he was legitimately elated that he, his business had gotten back to 60% of where it was. So it gives you some perspective on, on the people who did really struggle and still struggle as a result of this. Absolutely. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back to the basics a little bit about you know, getting financing through Fidelity or, or whatever bank it is. As a business owner, am I getting financing mostly because I'm trying to grow or is it you know, so the, obviously there's a property element. Okay, I want to purchase my property. Can you help me with that? That's that's you know a ton of different use cases for that. But the other types of financing equipment, et cetera, is that mostly I want to grow or is it mostly I need this to keep going? A little bit of both, Jonah. And the old banking joke is banks will only lend money to people who don't need it. And there's a, a hint of truth in that at the end of the day. So banks are going to lend more on past performance 
than future. And you know the SBA world, so there's other alternatives and vehicles out there that can lend based on projections. But most traditional banks aren't going to do that. They're going to want to see what you've done the past few years, how you're doing this year, and look at more at your current financial state and finance a project, frankly, as if it wasn't going to work out. Could you still afford to make that payment based on how your business typically does? Again, there's alternatives. SBA has some great programs. There's there's other uh, things. But as far as a traditional bank, they're going to look more about how you're currently doing. And I've got a variety of different clients. I mean, I helped uh, somebody finance a dump truck who's got a hauling business uh, for construction debris just last week. And he was adding a truck to his fleet because they had taken on a new client. And again, that's how well we get to know people. I can tell you exactly what that client does and how long they've been in business. And it doesn't look like a one-time thing. It also have financed before where they're just replacing an older one uh, just to keep their fleet at a certain level. So it really depends on exactly what that product is, um, what they're looking for, what industry they're in, how well we know their business in terms of what we will do. But again, if you don't have a relationship with a banker at a bank, you don't have anybody to ask, hey, Jonah, what, what would this look like? Would you all be able to lend if I'm expanding and want to add? Or you know, how, how much cash are you going to require me to bring? What are other costs associated with this? What does that look like? You need somebody to sit down and have that conversation for you, look you in the eye and be transparent. And I think you said something pretty insightful um, a couple minutes ago along those, that same, those same lines. Basically just it, it, a simple test as a, as a business owner practically is if you finance it and you have the terms of the financing and it doesn't work out, can you still run your business? Mm-hmm. That seems to be sort of a big underlying factor of will you lend yes or no? Absolutely. You can access previous episodes of Owner Operated and sign up for my free weekly newsletter where I summarize topics from each episode and send them straight to your inbox at jonapalone.com in the show notes. That's jonapalone.com. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more people find owner-operated. Back to the episode. I, I will say one of the things, when you asked what should business owners look for when they're interviewing a bank or anybody to be part of their board of directors, their team, their tribe, find out what the tenure is too of employees at that particular business. Because one of the things you hear about in banking is uh, there's a new face every time I go in. I can't get a relationship because the guy I like left or the gal I was working with is doing this. So find that out. You know, what is a typical tenure uh, of an employee at the bank? What's the tenure of their client base? They should be able to tell you these things. Um, And maybe find some other people who bank there as well. Get a legitimate third-party opinion because again, you, you sit down with somebody; they're going to paint a very rosy picture of their organization and w- what they bring to the table, and it may all be accurate. But uh, find out directly from the source. Find another uh, somebody in your industry who banks with that institution well and ask them what their experience has been like. Sort of be- along that same line of you know, I'm a business owner; I want to interview several different banks to get a feel for what I want, sort of thing, right? Let's back up just a, just a second um, and go back to this: the structure of a bank. You know, for example, Fidelity. I, I don't think most people understand how the process typically works. So, if you could walk me from it gets in your it gets in your hands, business development officer, all the way up to the end of yes, we will lend. Here's the money, sort of thing. Walk me through that process based on the structure of the bank. Sure. So it it should start off with having a conversation with me, and depending on how well we know each other, again, if I, if I've already lent 
money on six trucks before we probably skip that step a little bit, right? Because I know your business and we've got a history. But want to get to know all about your business, what you're trying to accomplish, what this particular project looks like, um, how things are going with your business, what what your competition looks like, uh, the marketplace, the economy, how all that fits in. Once we've got that understanding, you should have a conversation about what financing would look like. What are the terms? What are the rates, the cost, uh, everything like that? And when we understand that and want to move forward, that it's mutually beneficial, then uh, your banker is going to gather financials from you. So tax returns, a profit and loss statement, a balance sheet, a personal financial statement, sort of like your financial resume, a snapshot of how, how you're doing at that time. And once we've got those financials in, we send it in. We've got a department, most banks call it a spreading department, who does those numbers. Because we do have certain ratios for different things that we look at. And, and we, I wouldn't say we've got a, a defined box, but a lot of banks do. Um, but there are certain financials you want to see. One of the things we try not to do is pursue a project for someone that would not leave them in a good financial position. So even if, okay, Joni, you qualify, you don't have any money left at the end of the month. Like the, if I'm advising you to do a loan like that, I'm not doing my job. So we try to be very cognizant of that too. I've talked to people out of pursuing projects and loans that would have helped me hit a goal and help the bank, but it was the right thing to do. And then we're set up that way. So once we get those numbers back, uh, as a banker, you should have a good idea if it's going to get approved or not and how it works at Fidelity. It's, it's different everywhere. Some, some lenders have authority where they can personally sign off on things up to a certain dollar level based on your experience or performance in the past. Some have a loan committee where you present to the committee and the committee decides whether to approve it or not. At Fidelity, uh, each of us works with a specific credit officer. So I know my credit officer well. I know what he likes to see. I know the questions he's going to ask. The, and I know, okay, well, I see this. He's going to ask about that. I better be able to tell the story behind it. Because then it's my job to take all of this, the project details, the financing, the numbers, and present it. You know, as bankers, we write credit memos where we tell all about the company, the guarantors, the business, the uh, projections, the project, everything that we're trying to do to present it in a, a, the most favorable light, but be also a very honest light. Cause it's my credit officer's job to come in, work with me, make sure this makes sense within our appetite and what we want to do. And it's a project that we feel good about. So uh, the credit officer issues final approval and then we're ready to go. Got it. And so I guess just wrapping that up, that point up, the structure of the bank itself, you know, how does that work? It goes from, so you take the deal in, you have the first conversation, you're the BDO. Who does it go to next? We're at Fidelity. We're, we're a one-stop shop. We're a pretty flat organization. So it goes through me and I, I work uh, in conjunction with a credit officer. And again, you know, you mentioned an adversarial relationship before, I think at a lot of banks that back office person who's deciding ultimately whether to give you a thumbs up or thumbs down can be adversarial. I worked at a bank where we joked when we were submitting a loan, it was going to the sales prevention unit. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm sending this one up to the SPU. Oh, goodness. See what they say. And again, the, the way we're structured to have a one-on-one relationship um, with my credit officer, Matt, we know each other well. He is trying to help. He's trying to get things approved that make sense within our structure. I feel like he's a crucial part of my team. And we need to have that rapport and relationship so I can understand what his concerns are. He's very good at what he does. He knows his stuff. And there's a reason 
that he wants to know more detail in certain areas. So with us, it's just, it goes through me. we got folks who help do the numbers and input all the data. And then it's just between me and my credit officer. And that, that's it. If it were something particularly large or outside of the box, you know, really far out, that approval may have to go up to executive management. But again, we're, we're flat enough of an organization, Jonah, that I think I'm three steps from the CEO of our company, Mary Willis, and I'm, I'm no one important at Fidelity, but we're just structured that way. Uh, to where there's not a whole lot of layers of middle management and I don't have a committee and I'm not submitting something to a different person who might feel differently about equipment loans than this person. I know I've got a person and, and, and we know how each other think and we work as a team. Is that unique? Because I have not experienced that yet. <laughs> it is. Again, every bank's a little bit different. Yeah. Some let their lenders have some authority. Some go through committee. Um, some it's a team of rotating people and based on where things are in the queue, this person might pick up or this person and you don't know, gosh, how's he going to feel about it versus how she did last week. It enables us to have some consistency because when I'm out in the field, when I'm talking to business owners, I need to be able to do a little bit of napkin math. And if we're having lunch or coffee or a Zoom call or whatever is appropriate, I need to be able to say, Jonah, I think this is something we could pursue with confidence because I have done projects like this before and here's how they've turned out and here's what we need to look out for. And if I don't have that relationship with a credit officer and if I don't understand internally how we work and what we're looking for and what kind of things we are going to be concerned about and what kind of things we're going to love, I can't add that value when I'm having a conversation. Because what you don't want is to meet with a banker and like, well, let's let's see how this goes and I'll, I'll put it through and see what happens. You want some confidence. Say, so, you know what? We finance projects like this a lot. We know your business. We like this type of business. I think this is something that we can do. It also depends. It's bank to bank, but it's also team within, you know, team to team, it seems. Um, you know, obviously there's some banks that, that their BDOs are more just like, I hate to say it in a derogatory way, but sort of like, yes, men, right? Yeah, we'll get that done for you. No problem. Is sort of the, the, it's a common like sort of misconception that people think, oh, I just got to talk to the BDO. I've talked to them before and I'll totally get it. Right. Sure. That's not how it works necessarily. You know, it the, shouldn't. Right. Exactly. And it's, but a lot of banks do that. And, and also teams within banks do things a little bit differently, especially with larger, larger banks, um, how they do it, at least in my experience. And so it's just, it's interesting to hear your take on it. Cause you guys seem a lot more unified with like, you're directly talking with Matt, you said his name was to understand what he, what he looks for to see if some of the, if you can, you're not just going to say yes, even though it might not work out. Right. And to your point, I'll share a brief story. I talked a brand new client who I was trying to onboard out of his first financing project. I wasn't sure if he'd ever speak to me again. Wow. It was a doctor who was looking at, he did really well for himself, had cash sitting around, had plenty of income, and he wanted to get in, in the commercial world and do some investing there. So, you know, let's buy some commercial real estate. Makes sense, right? But what he wanted to buy as his first purchase that uh, someone else is guiding him towards was a trailer park in Orange County. And will we finance a trailer park in Orange County for somebody like him? We will. Jonah, the numbers were all there. He could afford the payment. It was fine. But we're going to treat that particular asset class as land because that's the most valuable thing that, that we have there. We're not interested in the individual units. And I drove out there to look at this place because not all trailer parks, not all trucks, equipment, buildings are, are 
the same, right? So it looked fine. The places were pretty well kept up. You know, I knew the right questions to ask about, hey, does the, you know, is there a municipality that provides, you know, water and sewage and utilities and that kind of thing? Or do they do it privately? How does that work? Mm-hmm. But one of the things I noticed, they didn't have any kind of office out there. So I called the guy. I said, doctor, um, do you know how the management of this facility works? He didn't. So he talked to the realtor, found out some information. He said, what I found out is there's a guy who um, does mows some people's lawns out there, and he kind of keeps an eye on it. And I asked him, I said, do you feel good about that? Because I looked at it in the middle of the day on a Wednesday, and it looked fine. How good do you feel about what happens there on a Saturday night that there's no oversight or direct management? And I, again, I thought he was a little upset with me because I said, we'll do it. But I kept telling him, I said, I think there are better uses of your money because yeah. the way we finance land, it's not as favorable of terms and conditions as it would be a, a traditional building, shopping center, something like that. And he, I ultimately, I frankly, wore him down, talking him out of it. Um, but six months later, he came to me with a he was purchasing now a shopping center that was had some really good anchors, some great leases to it. Much better deal for him. The cash flow worked a lot better. He could achieve some positive cash flow on it from day one, whereas it would have taken a few years with the other one. So, you know, you need to have somebody who can talk you out of something too, even though they can, I could have said yes to it. I could have approved it and just kept moving. But I wanted to go out there and see it and understand it and make sure he knew what he was getting into. Because he's sure not going to spend his time out there, you know, trying to manage the property. He doesn't, or, nor is he going to hire a property manager to do it in that case. And Fidelity, one of the ways we're different, too, and you may think I'm crazy for working there, but trust me, they, they take good care of us. And it's a wonderful place. We have very good tenure of our employees on average. Um they don't pay us any kind of variable compensation or incentive. So by doing that loan for him, that didn't push me into some kind of tier or threshold for a higher quarterly bonus payout. Um, I know I've got goals to meet. We are a for-profit organization. I don't want to hide behind any of that. Um, But what that does is it puts me and my colleagues on the same side of the table with the business owner. So I don't have to do something to hit a target. If I do what's right in the long run, the bank knows and has decades and decades of experience knowing that actually works. Taking a longer term view versus trying to beat a widget number from last quarter to please someone on Wall Street is a better view because Fidelity is a very sound, financial, profitable bank. So that longer term view actually works. It's a good business strategy. Yeah. I wish, um, you know, just hearing you talk about it, I wish more banks that we dealt with are like that. Um, I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of, you know, we help a, we help a business owner sell their company and a buyer comes into the process and we start to help guide that buyer on some of their financing options. Cause you know, in the lower middle market, mid street type company size range, there's not a lot of, you know, buyer service. So if you're a buyer of a business and you've never done this before, you really rely on the broker to help you make decisions. And, you know, we're in a lot of ways, we're sitting on the opposite side of the table, but we, we have to kind of be fair and presentable with, with it, or the deals will never get done. It's sort of that same principle we mentioned. So we're helping a buyer with this and time and time again, we, we, we bring it to um, a business development officer and it's sort of a foregone conclusion that they'll say, yeah, we'll take it because you know, a we've we've listed the business before, and 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 you know we've done our due diligence on it, and the buyer said, okay, they'll they'll 
they're interested in buying it. So it's gone through two sets of eyes already. Sometimes it just depends on, on who you get sometimes. And, and like you said, there's quotas that you have to keep in mind that aren't always transparent. And it can be frustrating if you don't know what those are, especially when you have initial conversations and say, listen, this is the deal. This is These are the highlights of the deal. Can you get it done? Now, they don't have to answer 100% yes, obviously, but but if they if they say, oh yeah, no problem, sure. It's just, it's, it's very frustrating when, you know, you're a couple months out and you've gone through your closing and you're 80% of the way done giving them requests and they say, yeah, we can't do this for you. Yeah, <laughs> right. No, nothing's more painful than dragging out a process and ultimately saying maybe or no uh, to that. And sometimes that happens to the best of us, but you try to avoid it when you can. To work for any organization that the culture is set up for you to do the right thing in every instance, and that's not just corporate speak, it really happens, enables you to be a different kind of advisor. Uh, there was another, it's probably two years ago now, uh, there was a five and a half million dollar project in Durham that was referred to me. And all the numbers looked great. The financials looked great. I have no doubt to this day that that is a successful project. Would it help me hit a goal, right? I passed on it and I referred it to a friend of mine who worked at a bigger national bank. Why? Tim, are you crazy? You're talking about talking people out of loans and referring them to other banks. <laughs> but we do that. And I know um, just by virtue of being in the industry so long and knowing different folks and working at a few different places, you know people at every bank in town. And it's good to have that reservoir and that network of people. Because if we can't do it, I'd much rather find somebody else to do it than just say, hey, sorry, we, we can't help you with this. So the story behind this one was there were three owners and the two biggest owners lived in Manhattan and had no connection to North Carolina. We only exist in central North Carolina and a little bit in Virginia. I'm not going to get to know those two people in Manhattan. They have no interest in being actively engaged in North Carolina at all. They don't have any ties to here. That's not a relationship. But for a bigger national bank who's got offices here and in New York, they can get to know that client and be a better fit for them. So, again, to have the backing of my company to where I could go to anyone and say, hey, I just passed on a $5.5 million deal, and here's why, and for the, your leadership to go, Tim, you did the right thing, that's very empowering as an advisor. Definitely. It was the right thing. Yeah, that's that's reassuring to hear. One of the things that's sort of I look at you and I, I admire is your ability to foster relationships. So this is sort of separate from what we've been talking about, you know, with the small business thing, sort of a, a related um, topic. But it's something I'm personally interested in. And as a BDO, that's that's your job is is business development. Really, what that is is relationship building. Absolutely. So when you got started to where you are today, that you know the difference between then and now, how have you developed yourself to where you can go out and make these relationships and, you know, thinking about giving advice to me because I'm in a similar role. I'm not a business development officer, but I, I, I do make relationships with business owners. How do you do that better? It's difficult, but you know, you're pretty good at it. So how do you improve? Well, thanks for the kind words. You're, you're being too generous there, Jonah, and you're, you're pretty good at it too. And you and I know some of the same people and, if I could go back and frame this question this way and talk to 22-year-old Tim fresh out of college yeah. and give myself one piece of advice on developing relationships, it would be, and I think this the problem is you can't shortcut this. It takes some time, but I think I could have been more conscious and intentional early on in my career. There are partnerships you can have, relationships you have that seem like they should, you know, I should get to know this guy or this lady, this gal, whoever, because they're 
in an adjacent industry. We should be good partners. They're successful. They work for this company. This should be my relationship. And I had this idea, and I think a lot of people do. I need to have a relationship with her. The more I've done this and the more your circle gets bigger and bigger, just naturally you meet people by the course of doing business and being out. But that true core group of people that you look at and that you have true relationships with, it's got to be a good fit. And that seems trite and you think, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But if you, you don't have to be best buddies and go drink beers after work or play golf or what have you, but there has to be a mutual interest and you have to have some common ground to make sure that it's the right fit. So if I could do anything, I would keep that core circle of people exclusively to people who we both like doing business together. And again, that, that sounds trite and maybe counterintuitive, but I think you really have to have that. And I think if you have coffee or lunch or whatever with somebody, get to know them for a little bit. I think both people are thinking, you know, is this a relationship that I want to pursue further? And almost, gosh, it almost sounds like it's dating or something, but it's the same concept. Yeah. Oh, right? it, it's if you the don't same concept. get along and have some common core values and some kind of natural partnership there, um, it's not going to work. You're not going to think of each other. You're not going to partner that often. Thanks for tuning into the uh, Jonah Pallone dating podcast. <laughs> Please do not take. <laughs> I've been out of that market, thankfully, for a long time now. Don't take that advice from me. Um, so if I was if I was to ask you, Tim, all right, Tim, I'm, I'm say I'm your boss or, or who, you know, whoever oversees you, and I'm helping you set goals. And I say, Tim, um, you need to build a book of business. So you have a you, you're you're who you are right now, right? And I said, Tim, I need you to get five new clients in the door. How are you doing that? What's your first step? The best way to expand your client base is think about the clients that you love working with and find more of them. And I know, I don't, that's another thing I might tell 22 year old Tim is people want to help you. In general, people want to see, particularly with banks, clients will come in, how's the bank doing? They want to know that it's whatever you do, people want to help you do business. And the best thing you can do is say, well, Janet, it, I'd be really successful if I had five more people like you. How do I meet more people like you? So if you can get referrals from your existing client base to people who are like them, people typically refer above their own station, too, because it's a reflection of them. So they're going to send you somebody who's really good, who you think they think will be a good fit. They think you can help, and they see that uh, you would get along and have a good relationship. So I would start there, absolutely. Okay. Perfect. First question for you, um, books, mm -hmm. any book recommendations? I actually don't read a lot of business type or self-help type books. I, I don't know. For some reason, I just, just can't get engaged with those. I know there's plenty of good ones out there, but um, reading a few books right now, I'm in, I'm in a big uh, World War II history phase. Uh, so there are some great ones about that particular area of uh, history if you're into that kind of thing. I've got an eight-year-old daughter. She's started to get super into Harry Potter, so we're going back and reading all that those books. I don't know if that'd be up your alley or not, but we've <laughs> we've had a great, great time with that lately, and seeing it through That's your kids' awesome. eyes is a, a really neat thing. That's awesome. Um, how do you – so obviously <clears throat> we both work hard, but how do you decompress outside of work? You said you've you got an eight-year-old daughter. I mean, spending time with her, are there activities that you've taken up? Obviously having lunch and coffee meetings are fun, but how do you kind of decompress? Family time. That's what it's all about. Um, and eight is a fun age to have a kid because they're just starting to – 
come into their own and you, you really get into what they like and don't like and, and see their personality forming. But uh, anything we can do as a family, we like to spend time outside. Uh, we're, we're very active. Anything like that, uh, right up my alley. I certainly like to exercise and play golf, and I'm a sports fan and like to read, and, and uh, we like cooking and gardening. But uh, all everything I just mentioned we, we do as a family, which is a cool thing. Sounds like you live in Raleigh. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Good place to have a family. Cool, man. Um, anything else you want to tell the listeners before we jump off here? We can, we can um, talk about fidelity and, and how you would get started, but anything else? I think the overarching theme that I walk away with from this conversation is just have that inner circle of advisors and whatever is appropriate for you. Uh, of course, I'm going to tell you, you should always have a banker in that circle, but what, whatever works for you, just make sure you've got your tribe of people that you can run decisions past and that you can trust and are going to be a long-term relationship to you that can introduce you to key people that you need to know. Make sure you've got that circle of people who can help support you and your business and want to see you be successful that are on your side. Got it. I think we'll end it there, Tim. I'll, I'll link everything uh, in the show notes. I'll link Fidelity, et cetera. Um, and if you have any questions about financing, make sure you contact Tim. And thank you so much, man. I really appreciate you being on. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. This episode of Owner Operated is sponsored by OnTops Roofing, a family-owned and operated business servicing the Triangle area of North Carolina since 1991. With a long-standing commitment to quality work and customer service, OnTops has grown to be recognized as one of the most respected roofing contractors in the Triangle. They offer roofing work, window replacements, siding replacements, and gutter installation services. Check them out at ontopsroofing.com. That's ontopsroofing.com. Thank you for listening to Owner Operated, conversations with small business millionaires. Be sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter at jonapalone.com, where I share the takeaways from each episode and share any resources or tips I find valuable. And if you like the episode, please leave a review on iTunes. It really does help the show grow and send it to a friend that you think would benefit from it. Thanks so much.